Welcome to Into Africa. My name is Judd Devermont. I am the director of the Africa program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I was the National Intelligence Officer for Africa and worked at the National Security Council. This is a podcast where we talk politics and challenge paradigms. On deck today, Tanzania has a new president. Will Samia Suluhu Hassan clean up the mess left by her predecessor? And COVID-19 restrictions has hurt Nigeria's trading class. What policies would bolster the country's trade associations? Plus, we discuss disinformation in sub-Saharan Africa. How do we detect and disrupt coordinated campaigns to deceive and manipulate African publics? So whether you have a history with the continent or you're a newcomer, we want to get you into Africa. This is our 11th episode in our partnership with African Arguments. For our listeners, African Arguments is a pan-African platform for news, investigation, and opinion. Samia Suluhu Hassan is Tanzania's new president following the death of John Magafuli. Will she break with her predecessor's bad policies? Joining me to discuss Tanzania and other topics are Rose Jackson, Director of Policy Initiative at the Atlantic Council's Digital Forensic Research Lab, Shelby Grossman, a research scholar at the Stanford Internet Observatory, and Elsie Ayakuze, a writer and blogger for the Mikochene Report. Okay, on March 19th, Tanzanian Vice President Samia Sulu Hassan was sworn as the country's sixth president. With the Quran in her right hand, Samia Suluhu Hassan took the oath of office. With her swearing in, Hassan has become Tanzania's first female president. She used her speech to call for unity in the face of adversity. She replaced John Magafuli, who was rumored to have died from COVID-19 and had a reputation for steering Tanzania towards authoritarianism. His rule was characterized by COVID-19 denialism, a crackdown on political opposition and civil society and the media, and economic policies that stifled foreign direct investment. Elsie, what do we know about the new president and her policies so far? Are we seeing continuity, change, a bit of both, none of the above? What do you think? I would say that we're seeing a bit of continuity as well as a bit of change. There's a task force that has been formed to look into the COVID situation in Tanzania and see what the government can do in order to just address that. I can't say that there's anything that's changed radically in the past couple of weeks because there were some changes that had happened several months ago already, such as public places having hand washing stations and offering hand sanitizers and people wearing masks when they're out and about in public, especially more crowded indoor spaces. There hasn't been any mention of what to do about the alternative therapies that were offered, such as steam inhalation and taking various nutrients, I guess, to try to boost your immunity system. I saw this article in the East African earlier this week, so in mid-April, that talked about semiophilia. I don't know if that's like their take on what would Magafuli do, but are people excited? Do they, I mean, what's the sort of the sense on the ground, semiophilia? Oh, I love it. I have not heard that term. This is the first time and I absolutely love it. I would say that um, it's actually a mixed bag. There's certainly a lot of people who are excited about Mama Samia's presidency, me being one of them from the get-go, but there's also quite a lot of caution, I think. And there's people who are adjusting to the fact that we have a woman as president for the first time ever. 
So yes, she's definitely got a lot of supporters and fans, but then I speak to my own circle. So we're probably a bit of an echo chamber in the sense that we're all very excited about her. I've certainly heard people questioning, like, how is she going to balance being a woman and being, you know, head of state? We are a patriarchal society. We're aware of it. We are very aware of it. So we kind of have to figure out how we're going to negotiate that together as a polity. But yeah, I lo- thank you so much for that term, <laughs> semiophilia. <laughs> Well, we have to give all due credit to the East African columnist, and we'll put a, sh- a link in the show notes to that. But I think one of the issues around the caution, you know, my sense at least, is if she is for change, the question will be, can she navigate the ruling CCM? I mean, she's pointed some pretty good technocrats, including a friend of the pod, Ambassador Mula Mula, who's now the foreign minister. But the conversation, as I understand it, is can she manage the Magafuli loyalist? How does she think about the old guard, including President Kikwete? You know, how much is that important, depending on whatever her vision is, to sort of move the country forward in terms of harnessing and managing the CCM? I kind of see it a little bit differently because, first of all, CCM is not a monolithic organization insofar as I know. I've been observing it for a number of years now, and I feel as though it's a very broad party. What you see on paper is a descriptor only goes so far in explaining how truly complex it is as an organization. When you say CCM, it's a little bit hard to be like, yes, this is what CCM does, or there is an old guard and only one type of old guard. Maybe there's two, maybe there's three, versus what kind of new guard. And how President Samia Sulu Hassan fits into that whole constellation, I think is also going to reflect that complexity because there's a lot of negotiation of power that's going to happen here and that is probably still ongoing. There's continuity with the past. I mean, CCM has been in government since we got independence all the way to now. But at the same time, it has been flexible enough to evolve with every new head of state and every head of state has had a chance to stamp their own vision on the country through, you know, their administration. So I think that part of what's really exciting about now is seeing how that dynamic is going to work out with um, President Samia Hassan for a number of reasons, of course, because also she's our first president who is also a woman. That makes a lot of sense. And of course, this is a question really for Tanzanians in terms of where they will go. But this is a podcast that talks a lot about U.S. policy. So I'm going to have to inject the United States into this conversation. And uh, I'm sure if you have complaints, you can just at me on Twitter. But Rose, what should the U.S. government do here? Um, I will note that Vice President Kamala Harris did call the new Tanzanian president. We've had a very contentious relationship with Tanzania under the Magafuli regime. And where do you think the U.S. can be helpful? Where should the partnership go now that we've got this potential reset? I think it's a really interesting moment, though it is super dependent on what it is that we think Tanzanian country, the new leadership, what it wants to accomplish and how the United States orients to that. I can say personally, the last six years were really hard to watch a country feel like it was backtracking on civic space, on some of the opportunities for regional leadership that you know the United States had certainly relied on as a steady partner in the region. If, in fact, Suhulu's interest is in regaining some of that stability and openness in the country, how does the United States push forward a policy that helps that along, that builds incentives and provides her support and more power at her back to accomplish those goals, as well as activists in the country and people that have throughout the last six years been working hard to maintain the identity of a Tanzanian state that they've wanted? 
from the perspective of the most operational versions of U.S. policy, there are some visa bans and there were some conversations about sanctions. And I'm always a big fan of, you know, empowering the decisions around when those things come off in partnership with people in the country you're talking about. So having that be an active conversation with Suhulu, with activists about how you sequence a potential backing off of those. I think recentering Tanzania as a regional actor and treating Tanzania on par with Kenya and Uganda, which sometimes takes first billing and how the United States uh, treats the region, particularly recognizing that, you know, when something kicks off in Burundi or, or name it, Tanzania is almost always one of the places that the international community depends on to be a safe and stable partner in dealing with crisis. And that's something I think the U.S. has an interest in returning to. And I hope is something that Tanzanians themselves also hold as part of their identity and regional leadership. Within that, though, is the question of like, what is it as the United States that we would see as in our interest changing in both the relationship and what's happening? There are some really key civic space actions required, and whether that has to do with positive announcements recently about radio stations and media houses being reinstated, whether we're talking about opposition being welcomed home and embraced and provided not just statements of safety, but the safety of actually meeting with government uh, as we're seeing some of those steps. And, you know, just clear signs that the shuttering of civic space that we saw over the last six years is perhaps turning back. I think that would help anchor U.S. approach to Tanzania in a, in a helpful way. There's so much there that I want to react to. And if I had my druthers, maybe this would be just an episode on Tanzania. But I just want to say a couple things, Rose, because I think you're exactly right around sort of this has to be a dialogue with Tanzanian society, the new president, but also activists and the opposition and the private sector. I'm 100% behind this idea of how do we think about dismantling certain sanctions, although some probably need to remain. But what are the benchmarks around that? We tend to be terrible at sort of removing sanctions as a matter of course. But then I would just add something that it hasn't come up yet in this conversation, but I'm just drawing from other experiences, is there's going to be an instinct from the U.S. government to think about this new president as this perfect antidote to what is happening in Tanzania. I've seen this in Senegal. I've seen this in other countries, Buhari in Nigeria, when he first came to power, that this new leader is going to change everything. And that one is unfair in terms of the expectations. But two, it doesn't give you a lot of space when things don't go well and they don't sort of align with shared values. So I think personally, we should be embracing the optimism and the semiophilia that's going on, but also give ourselves some room that we may need when things don't work the way that civil society and the general public and the global community is looking for. But again, we can't do Tanzania the whole episode as much as I'd like to, because I want to talk about Nigeria, which is obviously a topic that I always want to come back to. And I'm thrilled that Shelby's here as someone else who spends a lot of time thinking about Nigeria. And where I wanted to go in this conversation is really thinking about the COVID-19 lockdowns and sort of their impact on Nigerians. Millions of Nigerians work in the informal sector and have received little to no support from the government to help them get through the epidemic. Even food vendors worry about the impact an extended lockdown could have on their business. If the lockdown should take longer than it's supposed to, you know, people won't have money to purchase food again. So everything they'll be taking will be on credit and it will affect us a lot. And Shelby, you've been doing a lot of work studying traders in Nigeria over the past decade. And I thought just a little bit of your insights, your current research on how Nigeria's trading class has been affected by the pandemic, or I should say more, more specifically, 
the public health restrictions from the pandemic. I co-run with colleagues a representative panel survey of traders in Lagos. We've been following about 1,200 traders since 2015. And we've surveyed the panel over the phone four times since the pandemic began. These are like kind of consumer goods traders who have like small shops and markets. Um, And we have a couple of interesting findings about how the pandemic has affected them. First, I guess, not surprisingly, traders had basically no revenue during the early part of the pandemic when the markets were completely closed. So, you know, you could have imagined them maybe shifting to another sort of business, but that's just not what happened. The second finding is that since May 2020, when the markets reopened, sales have rebounded fairly substantially, but employment has not. It's not like these traders had, you know, a ton of employees, but many of them typically had, you know, one employee and they're not bringing those employees back very quickly. And then our third finding is that traders are experiencing both problems with low demand, which is, you know, maybe not that surprising, but they're also really struggling to restock. Many of these traders actually import directly from countries like China. So they'll literally have like personal relationships with a supplier who's in China. And not only that, they actually really like to travel to China so that they can buy their products in person. So obviously the pandemic has been affecting that a lot. And then finally, and relatedly, we're seeing a lot of interest in expanding the use of electronic payments and also potentially ordering remotely. So ordering without traveling to the country that you're buying from. Even though traders are expressing interest in these things, in practice, remote orders have actually been declining during the pandemic. So those are some of the issues that we've been hearing from traders. Well, I think what that really does illustrate is that the IMF just recently said that sub-Saharan Africa will have the slowest recovery of any region in 2021. You know, it's supposed to grow by 3.4%, but still that is relatively low compared to Asia, Europe, you know, in the Americas. And I think some of the issues, Shelby, that you're talking about, even at the micro level, I think gives some flavor to that dynamic. Shelby, why don't we zoom out a little more? Because your new book, The Politics of Order in Informal Markets, How the State Shapes Private Governance, demonstrates how private associations develop pro-trade institutions, right? Private associations that support trade are really important right now during this challenging time. So how does that work? And are there policy implications? This is a policy podcast that we can sort of draw from your research. So my book asks why some market associations, so these are like private associations for physical marketplaces with retail and wholesale traders, why some of these associations do all these things that are so great for trade. So for example, some of these market associations will like share information among traders about bad suppliers who they should avoid trading with. And you could imagine that services like that would be particularly important right now where traders might not be able to source from their regular suppliers due to the pandemic. And so they have to transact with new individuals. And then on the other hand, you have some associations that are actually extorting from their own traders. So what explains that? That's kind of the question that I'm trying to get at in the book. And you might think that, especially in a place like Nigeria, where the government has a reputation for being so corrupt, that private governance would thrive when the state like keeps its hands out of private group affairs. But I actually find the opposite to be true, that it's actually when the state is trying to meddle in these private groups 
that that actually motivates these market association leaders to get their house in order. So they'll try to do things like reducing disputes because disputes can provide opportunities for these meddling politicians to interfere. It's actually when the state is not involved that these private market leaders face few constraints on extorting from their traders. I think, you know, one policy implication that I think about a lot is that often governments delegate powers to private groups in society. So for example, they might delegate tax collection to market associations or resident associations, and that can make sense. But in doing so, public officials should probably be thoughtful about whether the group leaders that they are delegating to actually represent the interests of the group. And if the group leader doesn't represent their interests, by granting them more powers, you can actually be consolidating their rule and facilitating extortion. What I think is interesting about this conversation, Shelby, is that the U.S. government has this new initiative or has had this initiative that was under President Trump and has continued called Prosper Africa. And it's about sort of increasing two-way trade. But when I hear the way they think about deals and transactions, it's really about American business to African governments. And yet everyone that I know who is successful in investing in Africa really focus on private sector to private sector investment. You can tell me if I'm going way too far afield, but I do think it sort of talks about the potential of the African private sector or the Nigerian private sector in this case to self-regulate. And particularly if the government's getting involved to sort of push back, hopefully in productive ways. And I guess it just for me, it reinforces that if you're a U.S. company and you're looking for government tenders, you're actually going to potentially get more challenges than you would if you were just looking to work with, you know, a private sector or association or vendor. I think some of your research shows that these associations or the private sector does do a fairly good amount of self-regulation, particularly if they're concerned about government meddling. And it seems to me that it actually provides an opportunity to sort of reframe the conversation about opportunities and regulation and who are credible partners. Yeah, definitely. So my colleague Meredith starts really focuses on um, these traders' business decisions to travel when they import. And one of the policy implications that she often talks about is just that if the cost of a flight from Nigeria to China was reduced, that would actually have, you know, really substantial welfare implications for traders. It also gets to it just thinking about the enabling environment. And, you know, we'll do a lot of things at CSIS over this year to sort of think through that. But I want to get to our main topic today, which is around disinformation in sub-Saharan Africa. I wanted to talk to each of you about some of the work that you and your organizations have done. And so, Rose, let's start with you because you lead the Atlantic Council's DFR lab. You uncover this coordinated campaign by a network of public relations firms and news organizations and inauthentic social media accounts to promote President Museveni's campaign in Uganda. Could you talk a little bit about how that all came to be? Yeah, and I should say I lead a policy initiative at the DFR lab in partnership with uh, Graham Brookie, who directs the lab itself. 
And this particular piece was done by one of our researchers who's based in South Africa named Tessa Knight. Uh, the DFR lab, just for reference, has researchers all over the world looking at their own information environments and regional information environments, the ways in which political actors and commercial actors and civic actors make use of, manipulate, or appropriately leverage social media and the information space for whatever aims they have. And so as part of that, our researcher Tessa, in the lead up to the Ugandan election was looking at what had already been uh, a pretty interesting use of social media around protests, violence leading up to the election, particular around moments in which Bobby Wine was attempting to register himself as a candidate for president and the reaction of the state. She uncovered some pretty suspicious behavior on the part of what turns out to be news websites, including one that's fairly well known, Chimp Report, a PR firm, supposed PR firm, and what turned out to be a number of people directly linked to the Ugandan government, including the president's son, Muhozi's spokesperson, as well as the actual ICT ministry itself. I think this kind of thing is happening more often than we might think. It's just people aren't looking as often in places like Uganda than the attention that we direct in the United States. But I think it's really interesting to look at the timeline of this because, you know, our researchers started poking around and informed Facebook and Twitter of what she had found. As it got closer to the election, Facebook decided to move in uh, removing the offending accounts just, you know, less than a week leading up to the election itself which overlapped with what was going on in the United States. So January 6th, there's an insurrection and an attack on the U.S. Capitol. That same day, Twitter decides to suspend Trump's account. January 7th, Facebook decides to suspend Trump's account. January 8th, Facebook announces that it's removing the Ugandan accounts that we're discussing here. And we'll go on with kind of a crazy timeline that that is. But just to point out, if you're a Ugandan citizen or an East African citizen watching the news, it's not like you're not paying attention to the news that Facebook and Twitter have just removed Donald Trump from a platform at the same time that they're removing government related accounts in Uganda in the lead up to an election. Where this gets a little crazier is that on January 11th, uh, Twitter follows with some takedowns. And the following day on January 12th, President Museveni doing what he was definitely going to do, regardless of the report that we put out, announced that he would be shutting down the Internet. January 13th, YouTube finally removes Donald Trump. The election happens January 14th. January 16th, Museveni is declared the winner and President Kenyatta of Kenya tweets and sends out on Facebook through the Statehouse account, congratulations. On Facebook, it gets flagged as disinformation and is removed. So I, <laughs> I find this all kind of a, a fascinating illustration of how global these conversations are. We have American platforms that are making decisions on the fly about any number of countries' contexts and leaders and what disinformation is and isn't, at the same time as trying to deal with that in, in their own countries. And I think we're right now in the middle of a very interesting and necessary conversation about what a more coherent approach might look like. But that story was happening at a pretty uh, crazy time for social media across the world. That is fascinating. I hadn't put all of that together, so I'm really glad that you did that. And particularly, you know, congrats to Tessa for all of that work. What it says is that African activists and those of us who are focused on these issues have an ability to leverage these global conversations. And the Summit for Democracy is clearly going to have issues around disinformation. They're going to have the private sector there. And so 
African activists and folks that are looking at you know free speech and trying to counter disinformation should really think about that event as an ability, as a forcing function, as an opportunity to really push. Because I think your story shows, Rose, that when these companies are responding to these American pressures, we can sort of bandwagon on it. You know, I don't want to take away the agency, but we can use them as a catapult to kind of push these issues on the continent or globally. Judd, I'd even go a step farther and uh, say something that I wish was more commonplace. But, you know, if, if you are an activist, any country around the world focused on issues of democracy and human rights and questions of how that is protected in the online space, you need to concern yourself with a conversation about regulation of the tech industry in the United States. The EU is much farther farther along in that conversation than the United States is. And to some degree in the U.S., we don't even really have a full-fledged, coherent conversation. And the consequences of that are pretty significant because for large parts of the world, our own companies serve as the de facto Internet. And I say that without comment on what the outcome of that regulation should be. But I do think it's a global matter. And it is an example of as much as people get frustrated by the centering of U.S. policy in the conversation of domestic realities abroad. You know, the fact is the United States is large, it is powerful, its private industry is large and powerful. And the more that people are familiar with what that those points of pressure and conversations are in the U.S. and shaping that world, the more successful they'll be in having outcomes at home that look like what they want. That's a great point. So we talked about Uganda and an effort to this coordination and inauthentic behavior, right? But that was about a domestic issue led by domestic ashers, presumably. So Shelby, I wanted to sort of flip it a little bit and talk about some of the work that you've been doing at the Stanford Internet Observatory, which is looking at, again, disinformation networks in sub-Saharan Africa. But some of these have been around Russian businessmen, Prigozhin's work, whether it's in Sudan or Central African Republic or Mali. So can you talk a little bit about some of the work that you've done at Stanford? Yeah, so we've seen a number of disinformation operations targeting people in Africa linked to this Russian businessman Prigozhin over the past few years. Um, so these include operations, as you mentioned, targeting Sudan, CAR, Mali, Libya, other countries. So let me talk about the Libya one, actually, just because I think it's the most nefarious. So this operation, which Facebook suspended at the end of last year, had a bunch of goals. One goal was to try to undermine Libyan peace negotiations that were going on uh, at the end of last year. The operation also kind of spread the narrative that no peace talks could ever take place until these two, there are these two Russian prisoners in Libya, and they were like, oh, you know, peace talks can never take place until these two guys are released. There were also allegations that some of the kind of key political actors involved in these peace talks were taking bribes. And, you know, I think it's really hard to know what the impact of these operations is. But in this one, I think there's a decent chance that it actually had an effect. Hundreds of thousands of Libyans followed the pages that were part of this operation. This operation was implemented by perhaps unwitting Libyans in Libya. And specifically, it was implemented by Libyans who were working for the media staff of this strongman in Libya who Russia supports. And this is kind of consistent with a trend that we've seen in disinformation campaigns where actors are franchising out the creation of content to local actors. So local actors who are going to be fluent in the language of the people that the operation is targeting and who will know how to make certain narratives resonate. And we're not just seeing this in foreign disinformation campaigns. So Rose was just mentioning how in this Uganda operation, there was actually a public relations firm that was part of the operation. So this is really a trend that we're seeing both in foreign and domestic disinformation. 
Okay, so what I want to do now is bring Elsie back in the conversation because we've talked about what the networks are doing, what these actors, non-state, state actors are doing. Um, but Elsie, some of the work that you have been working on is really what should individuals do to confront fake news in their daily lives and within their communities. So whether they're in the internet or they're propagated by people like Magafuli, like what's the advice that you're sharing so people can navigate this space? I think that with any kind of news that we consume these days with so many actors there out there and with disinformation being a real problem all over the world, you have to start with yourself. So I always try to look at any piece of information or news from at least three different angles so that I can get some idea of whether or not this sounds like fake news or not. Once I kind of figure out what this piece of information is trying to do, like if I can see it has some kind of agenda, then I'll either share it or ignore it, depending on whether or not I align with the agenda itself or not. But because I actually do work in media, I write for the staff, and I have to be very careful to actually be on the side of proper news, you know, things that can be verified, real information, the facts at all times. Working with the East African has kind of trained me to think that way. Within my own community, within my own family and friends, etc., I try to tell people if they're forwarding me fake news and stuff, I try to just alert them to the fact that this looks suspect to me, that maybe they need to check out like who's sending it to them, what the sources are. And it's not something I could say like I'm able to do for as many people as I would like to. But part of addressing disinformation is also just sharing what information I do have on the platforms that I do have as truthfully as possible. This is a great opportunity, Elsie, for me to ask you about the fact-checking websites. We had Africa Check on the podcast last year. We did a whole episode actually on infodemics. But is that something they're availing themselves of? No, I don't think so. I mean, I consider myself part of the general population, to be honest. And more often than not, I'm embarrassed to say I really don't use fact-checking websites unless it's something truly controversial that I have no idea about. And I'm like, okay, where is this coming from? then I might try to find something. But generally speaking, no, this is just not something we do very well at all. Well, I have to admit, I don't go look at fact check websites myself for the most part, but I wanted to ask you, Shelby, building on Elsie's comments, since you have a global perspective at Stanford, are there anything specific to the African context that we should be aware of because there's a lower internet penetration, because, and I think this is true in lots of places, WhatsApp is seen as more trustworthy because you're getting it from friends. Is there different ways in which state and non-state actors of disinformation operate in sub-Saharan Africa, or is it relatively the same, you know, with the global picture? Yeah, I think the thing that I find remarkable is actually just how similar these disinformation campaigns look everywhere. So my team has now written reports on at least a dozen disinformation networks suspended by Facebook and Twitter. And so many of these operations just look so similar. You know, the sophisticated actors like Russia are always kind of updating their tactics. But for the most part, both foreign and domestic campaigns just look so similar. So they'll, you know, create fake news pages on Facebook, pushing certain views. They'll create fake Twitter accounts, pretending to be a citizen of a country supporting a certain politician. They create Telegram channels so that if Facebook and Twitter suspend their operations, they still have a Telegram presence. And this really just holds in sub-Saharan Africa, North Africa, the Middle East. I think the one thing that I'll add, though, to what Elsie was saying. So Elsie was really focusing on content on social media that's not true. And I think a lot of what we see in 
disinformation campaigns is actually the spread of true information. So this is not to say that the spread of misinformation is not important, but we're seeing a lot of these campaigns are spreading true information or spreading opinions that are not falsifiable. And, you know, it's still disinformation because there's deception and the deception is coming from these fake accounts or accounts that aren't being transparent about their links to a state actor. Some bad actors have just figured out that this is a really effective way to shape opinions, you know, spreading this kind of like non-falsifiable, hyper-partisan cheerleading content for a politician that they support. When I was talking with our, our researchers in South Africa, you know, I, I asked them on any other policy issue on the continent, if someone said to me, like, what's the trend in sub-Saharan Africa? I would like, you know, start the lecture on there are 54 countries. <laughs> Africa is not a country. Every place is unique. And I think that's the case in that, like, it is very hard to distinguish the digital environment from the online environment anymore, anywhere in the world. And so there's like a tried and true set of tactics and techniques that people can use to advance their objectives. But the context of why and the impact that can have is still the most important piece of it. And whether it's in Zimbabwe with, you know, the Varakashi, like a named troll army that resembles you know, we saw the Tencent army in China years ago as a precursor to that, or even one of the most interesting, or I, I will say somewhat entertaining and bizarre examples is, you know, Nigerian for-profit influencer accounts that get paid to then support, for instance, you know, Colombian money launderers that are trying to not be held accountable for international crime hiding out in a third country. Just for our audience, you're talking about Alex Saab in Cabo Verde. And there's a great article that just came out about the influencers. And I think Twitter took them down just recently. Yes, Twitter took them down. And but I mean, it's that's not going to go away. Of course, people are going to find if if eyeballs and influence is currency, people will find ways to monetize that and they will do that in, in ways across the board. I will say one of the, the two things that I think are really interesting questions that if we move outside of just the disinformation frame on the continent, one is we are seeing a return to Internet shutdowns that looks like 2008, something I thought we were past and that people had gotten a little trickier about, which tells us both that the people that have the ability to shut down the Internet no longer feel pressure <laughs> in being so blatant in their repression. And that's a note that has very little to do with the Internet and a lot to do with politics and power. But the second one, which I think is an interesting investigation of of dynamics on the continent that also dovetails then to what we can learn in other places, is this fine line, somewhat what Shelby's alluding to, this fine line between what is legitimate online organizing and what is disingenuous and problematic online organizing and manipulation. And, you know, I think uh, we'll have a piece coming out soon. I hope I'm not jumping the gun on uh, click to tweet campaigns in the Ethiopian diaspora, which to me is a fascinating example of this, where, you know, you're, you're skating that fine line. And in the United States, you know, I, I helped build a company that was focused on how to make it easier for people to share messages and influence the debate and policy outcomes locally for things that they care about. And I would describe that in quite altruistic words. But that same technique can be used by other actors in other contexts in ways that feel not quite right. And so particularly in a policy conversation, beginning to ask questions about whether what we're seeing online and the narratives that are being pushed are are in fact representative of the conversations on the ground and the conversations of the people most affected is an increasingly difficult thing to suss out. And I think something really worth our continued conversation. Well, I'm going to wrap up, I think, some of the points that I'm hearing from the three of you as it pertains to policy. And one of the big ones, particularly from Shelby and Rose, is you don't have to treat Africa as different 
And I think that is often the inclination from U.S. policymakers is to sort of put Africa in a different category. But all of the issues that we're sort of struggling with globally around disinformation are also ones that are replicating themselves in Africa. And so when we do these policy conversations, put Africa in the center of this with other countries and don't sort of have it as this sort of sideshow or specific conversation that doesn't relate to these global trends. And then I I think, Elsie, you got at a really interesting point about sort of how do you address both misinformation that Shelby mentioned and disinformation that we've been talking about. And while fact check websites may be great, it also has to do with trusted validators or trusted voices. That's in addition to sort of taking down these dime a dozen, you know, campaigns. So there's this sort of global policy perspective here, but also a very people to people engagement that we could be doing around this topic. We're built for this, I think, you know, both our diplomats and our partners in civil society, but we've just got to think about how to operationalize it. So we covered a huge amount of ground today. Let me thank Elsie and Shelby and Rose for joining us, and we'll see you in two weeks. Thanks for listening. We want to have more conversations about Africa. Tell your friends, subscribe to our podcast at Apple Podcasts or wherever you find good content. You can also check out our analysis and reports at csis.org slash Africa. Thanks.